Hello and welcome to the final British Exploring podcast of 2015. It's been an absolutely incredible year for the project. We started off with Sean Conway, an endurance adventurer and the first man to complete the ultimate British triathlon who also has a spectacular beard. We've spoken to record-breaking polar explorers uh, including Ben Saunders and Penn Haddo as well as starting a really exciting inspiration women's series uh, speaking to Tori James the first Welsh woman to climb Mount Everest as well as that we've spoken to Emily Penn who is a really passionate ocean advocate. Now today we're joined by Alistair Humphreys for our last podcast of 2015 and Alistair Humphreys is an adventurer, he's a filmmaker, he's a writer and he's most widely known for terming the small adventures that we can all have called micro adventures and the idea of instead of nine to five thinking, five to nine thinking and it's a really interesting discussion, it touches on all sorts of different things not just about adventure but about his blogging and his life and what makes him tick in general so I hope you enjoy, hopefully in 2016 we're going to be having more and more guests on the show so if you do have anyone you'd like us to speak to please let us know, you can either tweet us at brit underscore exploring or email us at info at britishexploring.org. Enjoy the show and Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you all. Hi, Bo. Hi, Alistair. How are you doing? I'm very well, thanks. How are you? Very good. Wonderful to talk to you. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you loud and clear. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from the Royal Geographical Society, actually. My favourite places. The home of geography, yeah. Are you are you in your shed, I assume? I'm in my shed, yes. Good stuff. I saw yesterday you were tinkering around with a uh, with a standing desk. Is it is it still standing today? It's still standing, uh, although I'm now seizing this opportunity to sit down because my legs are knackered. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've yeah. I've heard some interesting things about the standing desk. Do you think it's gonna do you think you're gonna stick with it? Well, I'd, I like the theory seems very obvious. Yeah. Seems obviously a good thing to me. Um and but I think you probably need to mix it up a bit. Um, but yeah, I would like to stick with it. I've got a bit of a bad back and I and I would like to spend less time in my life sitting at a desk. So maybe yeah. if I'm standing at a desk, that'll make me feel less like I'm wasting my life. Yeah, fair <laughs> enough. What about the, have you seen the treadmill desks as well? Do you think that's... <laughs> that, that'll be the next stage, yes. Yeah. The, the smallest adventure possible, just sitting on Google Maps on a treadmill. <laughs> oh gosh, that is a tragically yeah. good idea. yeah. With Tread- a virtual reality headset. Yes, you could run Land's End to John O'Groats in yeah. my shed. <laughs> Good stuff. God, I hope it never comes to that. Yeah, wonderful. Um, so, uh, do you know much about British exploring? Uh, yes, a fair bit, actually. Yeah. Yes, from back, yes. Um, I'm friends with um, Spike. Do you know Spike? Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, um, yes, they've crossed my radar quite a lot of times over the years. Um, I've never, I've, I've often intended to do stuff with you guys yeah. or for you guys but never actually nothing's ever actually happened so no it's nice to chat today's, to you. today's the day wonderful yeah so I mean the, the podcast is still pretty much in its infancy it's pretty much just my uh, my chance to you know speak to speak to interesting people so uh, it's, um, uh, how much time do we have just so I can be conscious of your, your as time. long as you want oh, um, would you like is the audio okay would you like me to put on a proper microphone if you're doing a podcast it sounds it sounds decent actually i mean okay. most of the problems i've had so far have been with my side and now i've got a, a road mic to record on so i think it should be okay it should cool. be good but um yeah so we'll just get into it i guess but 
I've seen as well, obviously, that you've been you've been saying you're sick of being asked the same old interview questions. So hopefully, I'll, I'll throw you some new ones as well. It's a challenge. <laughs> it is a challenge. So uh, yeah, hopefully, hopefully, I get you thinking, even though it is quite early. Um, yes. So just to begin, uh, obviously, introduce yourself for maybe those who haven't heard of you in the past. My name's Alistair Humphreys. I'm an adventurer and an author. Um, I've done adventures large and small, and I'm currently finishing off writing a kid's book and about to start some new kid's book. Oh, wonderful. What are the, the kid's books based on your, any particular adventure, or are they, are they moving into the realms of fiction? Well, all the good adventures are in the realms of fiction anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, the, the three kid's book I've written so far are a series called The Boy Who Biked the World, yeah. which is essentially the story of my own bike trip around the world but told through the eyes of an imaginary boy who goes off and has similar sorts of adventures um i i do a lot of schools talks um and so i've always felt that there's a, a an appetite in younger people for an exciting adventure to books that are educational but hopefully without being boring so that's that's what i've been trying to do Okay, interesting. And what kind of what kind of age for children? Like five, five, six year olds, ten, eleven, like young fiction. Where where's it sort of sit? It's upper primary, really. So if it was being read to a child, that could be five or six, and then self reading up till about eleven ish. So primary school age, um, which I think is a really nice age when I give talks because they're still so enthusiastic and positive about life, and they're not yet lazy and full of full of a artificially imposed constraints on what they might be capable of doing so little kids all still believe that they could and will go and cycle around the world which is very refreshing when you do talk to adults everyone starts to get a bit more negative about the boring stuff of life so I quite like the enthusiasm of kids yeah no that's really interesting as well I think I was discussing this the other day it's it's sort of what it's now I guess once you get to a certain age there's sort of no mystery in the fact that you can just google everything so I guess for a young child they haven't quite even got to that stage where they've necessarily know how to sort of you know solve their own curiosity so it, it must be a, it must be good getting a, a good reaction from them yeah that's true and also uh, children young children don't yet know what they don't yet know so you can tell them about that there's a place called Africa and this sort of stuff happens there and they've never ever heard of it before and it's therefore deeply exciting so doing anything for the first time is the most exciting time yeah Cool. And is that how, I mean, you, so you start off with the around the world trip. Was there always intention that, you know, this could be a career or in the back of your mind, was there something that, you know, maybe even before university, you sort of imagined yourself doing other than adventuring? My initial daydream when I was at university and trying to daydream about alternatives to getting a proper job yeah. was to become a travel writer. That was my dreams. Bill Bryson, uh, William Dalrymple, Bruce Chatwin all rolled into one. That, that's what I dreamt of doing, but I didn't actually realistically think it would become my job. And actually, even now, it, it, it isn't. I've written eight books, and there's absolutely no way I could make a living from that. So to make a living from writing is, is very rare and difficult. But that was a vague daydream I always had. But I think what I really aspired to do is I wanted to cycle around the world just for the hell of it, just for me, just for the big adventure, and then I wanted to write a book about that trip just because I liked reading books and I wanted to see if I could write one. I didn't really have any bigger ambitions than that at the time. Yeah. And how did you set about writing it? I mean, often, you know, I keep thinking like, oh, I've, I've done a few adventures. Where 
where to begin? Did you sort of just start on day one? I'm just going to, you know, write about my first day, then write about the second, or were you sort of already thinking about how to piece together sort of a, you know, an enjoyable, enjoyable story? I started by on the trip itself, just writing a diary just for my own interest and to pass the time and to try and sort my head out because I was, I was on my own. So I think writing a diary on a trip is a really important thing for anyone to do, regardless of whether they want to write a book and actually regardless of whether they consider themselves the sort of person that writes a diary. I think they're essential for any uh, expedition person. So immediately then I had four years worth of diaries, which was an initial skeleton of a story. So I wrote that up and that was just, I got up today, had breakfast. I got up today, had breakfast. (laughs) I had to edit four years worth of uh, narration about my breakfast into something a little bit more interesting. But essentially it is just a chronological story. I tried very hard to think of a a very new, quirky, unusual way of writing the story about writing around the world, but I, I couldn't, I failed. I couldn't think of anything that wasn't just a bit of a, a, a gimmick. So in the end, I just wrote the narrative of I started here and then I went there, but yeah. tried to make it interesting. Yeah, uh, but then I've, I've, I saw you did your walk around India and you did publish that as a map, which I thought seemed like quite, quite an interesting concept. You just go into a bit about, you know, an alternative way of storytelling through the map then yeah I, I did a trip i walked through southern india it was a six week 600 mile walk and it was beautiful and really interesting and i enjoyed it very much i was very conscious it wasn't some sort of great epic journey like ed stafford walking the amazon but it was really interesting to me so i came home and i started writing a book along the usual lines of i went here and i went here and it was so rubbish <laughs> because, because nothing very interesting happened so i I, after a few months of flogging this dead horse, I just gave up. I quit the whole book for about uh, two years. And then two years later, I had a new idea of how to write the story in a, a very different, non-linear way. Um, trying, And I tried to then just turn the whole story into the story of one day on the road for anyone who's done any journey anywhere at any time, whoever they might be, just this this daily thing that becomes addictive to anyone who likes travel and adventure and expedition. So I wanted to tell that story of the day on the road and try and explain why I do these sort of adventures. And the why part of it really wasn't very linear at all. You could start, you could, you, there's no reason you had to start at page one and read to page 200. So I turned, I decided to try and represent the, the story in a completely non-linear way. And I love maps. So I I made what's called a mapazine. It's like a giant fold-out ordnance survey map. Yeah. is that, and that lovely thick paper, but with the chapters dotted all over that, interspersed with loads of pictures, double-sided, just so that you can, in the same way that when you fold a map, you just see a little bit of it at a time. You can just dip into the story, read a little bit, and dip in somewhere else when you're interested in something different. Um, I love it. I'm really proud of it. I think it's absolutely brilliant, and absolutely no one buys them. So, yeah. <laughs> So it's, I'd say it's a creative success and a financial disaster, which is probably the preferable way around to be in life. Yeah, yeah, that's that's very true. <laughs> Interesting. And then, I mean, just more about the logistics of doing a mapazine. Is there a specific company that you know you can go and you can you can do it, or is this done at a, a you know local printers? How could someone else recreate this drastically poor economic decision? <laughs> you could do it at a local printer's, but I did it through a company called Folded Sheet, who are actually uh, pop up very regularly at the RGS at Explore. 
Um, I did it with them, and it's a really beautiful thing. So I definitely recommend people trying it for their own projects or organisations. But just be a, be aware that because it's unusual, that makes it harder to convince anyone they should buy it. Trying to make people buy new stuff is hard. So I I think it's something that's good to make if you're looking for something to give away, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and you you can. I mean, I've been been on the shop. So, is it the case that if you buy your the three children's books or any two items, you get the map thrown in? <laughs> I've got a garage full of maps, so virtually anything that anyone ever does to me, I will give them a map. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, hopefully, uh, maybe I'll be receiving a map soon then. <laughs> cool. So, I mean, obviously, you mentioned a bit about Ed Stafford and his sort of you know his his style of adventure is much more sort of hard physical challenge. You've done a bit of that yourself. Where what do you what do you sort of prefer? That sort of you still want to be challenging yourself, but you you quite like the more sort of you know your, go at your own pace style of, of adventure. I've I've always been interested in the the entire spectrum of expeditions, adventure, and travel, which are all varieties of the same thing, really. Yeah. Um, going from someone um, backpacking for the first time when they're eighteen up to uh, climbing K2 in the middle of winter it's all this people are doing it essentially for the same reasons they're just at different places on the spectrum um and no nowhere on there is better or worse it's just very different and I've always quite enjoyed bouncing around on that so initially when I started doing expeditions though I really wanted to be at the tough end of things doing things that were difficult and wild and remote and very physically challenging and that's what inspired me originally and what drove me and motivated me but uh, but having done some of that stuff now, I, I now know that I'm able to have a miserable time. I'm able to suffer. Um, I'm able to um, do do those sorts of things. And and once I know I can do something, it becomes less appealing to me. And that's why in recent times I've been moving more from the the masochistic stuff to the creative stuff, just because I like learning new things. So trying to learn to be a writer, a photographer, make films, they, they, they're what excites me more than being really, really miserable and soaring my fingers off. Yeah, but I mean, do, is there, there is sort of this weird enjoyment of doing something miserable and then sort of reflecting back on it, isn't there? And I think that's something that the people who, you know, are on this scale of enjoying travel, they sort of seem to get. But do you think it's, do you think that kind of behaviour sort of, you know, isolated to a niche part of the population or do you think everyone should get happy with being miserable and reflecting back on it (laughs) i think it's really my best adventure and expedition memories are generally the ones that were tough frightening cold wet and miserable all at the same time and there's there's, i don't know if you know the notion of type two fun Uh, i have heard type two fun i I kind of i wasn't sure is this i wasn't sure whether it was a universal concept or something my friend might have made up but yeah type two fun i'm i'm all for so type type one fun for anyone who ha- doesn't know type one fun is just doing stuff that is nice and fun like having a cup of tea and looking at the taj mahal type two fun is doing stuff that's cold wet frightening miserable horrible and later when you get home with your friends and you you're in the pub you laugh about it and you look at that as the best days of your life and i think type two fun is essential because it pushes your limits mentally and physically it makes you realize that you're capable of more it makes you uh, grow as a person and an individual and I think the those experiences are very transferable to other real life 
stuff as well as work personal things so i think it's really really important to do that and i think anyone who's interested in adventure and travel should definitely push themselves um to do something that's physically difficult at some time whether whether the whole population should do it i'm not sure because there are a lot of people in the country who have zero interest in the wilderness and climbing mountains and that's fair enough but i suppose a lot of people get their kicks from running a marathon or doing a triathlon that's there's a dose of type 2 fun in those as well which is important for everyone i think interesting and have you heard of type 3 fun yeah type 3 fun is when you do stuff that was not fun at the time and will never ever seem fun in the future <laughs> nor make you happy that's yeah. going to a dark place you need to you need to stay away from that yeah but that's and actually, and actually with a t-shirt today called the three types of fun which is a slightly dorky flow diagram explaining these things okay brilliant and where, where's that from in case uh, i might i might check it out that's from from the dark places of the internet i'm not sure <laughs> you didn't make it yourself <laughs> no no i I haven't yet ventured into having a garage full of uh, <laughs> dodgy T-shirts as well. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I was, I was at the Explore conference last year. And I did see a lot of people wearing your your Micro Adventures T-shirts, which I think is when I sort of first first became familiar with the with the term. Yeah, yeah. Marketing, and they got cash. Maybe there's a businessman in me there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. When did the the Micro Adventures idea start? I mean, obviously, I can imagine if you're doing corporate talks and you know you're trying to encourage people to do adventures, if the only adventure on offer really was to go cycle around the world most employers wouldn't be too happy if if they're sort of all their employees start quitting so <laughs> well what actually interesting you you come at it from the talk angle because um i think i normally see it from the opposite angle but from the talk perspective i think when when adventurers give talks to businesses which they have been doing for a hundred years um Captain Scott and Shackleton were trundling around businesses trying to drum up support a hundred years ago. Um, I think there's two things. One is the you tell them rip-roaring big adventure stories which are hopefully fun and exciting and vicariously enjoyable and there's some sort of metaphors about risk and, um, in there. And then there's micro-adventures which are deliberately, willfully, real-life, small, attainable adventures which talk about trying to get some sort of balance and perspective and work-life balance and trying to encourage people that you can look at anything in life in two ways you can see the the constraints of your nine to five or you can see the opportunities from when you finish at five o'clock and hopefully head out from the office en masse and go sleep on a hill (laughs) i'm sure the vast majority of people i speak to in offices have no desire to go sleep on a hill but it's a they're, they're nice stories to tell um, and to answer your actual question, microventures came about a few years ago because I started to feel. Well, people started because I've been I've been doing adventures for quite a few years now, and I got to the point where it become my living as well, and therefore people would perceive me as an adventurer, which strikes me as has always struck me as made me feel quite uncomfortable because I don't really feel like that. I just feel like a normal guy who's choosing to do this sort of stuff. So. I wanted to try and make adventure more accessible to more people and help people begin. It's beginning adventures is the hardest part of, of anything, I think. Committing to the first one, starting the first one, that's by far the hardest thing you ever do. So so that was the initial starting premise of micro-adventures. Okay, interesting. And I think this whole idea of being an adventurer, I saw Tom Allen also had a had a post about this, how he wasn't really comfortable with the term I mean it, it, how do you spend your days if you were to look at the most the time you spend most is most of it writing and 
planning what what would you know if you had to do it on time how would what would your job description be uh my job description if it was done on time would be master tea drinker procrastinator and faffer around on the internet um in terms of actually vaguely useful stuff i do i well in terms of my job i guess i it comes from writing and speaking so i'm travel to talks i give talks i organize them i do a lot of online stuff in order to make people know about me in order to book me for talks and to buy books i spend time writing books and um in recent years since i've been doing the micro adventure stuff that takes up far less time than some journey like cycling around the world or rowing across an ocean so my life is becoming ever more um desk bound and and creative rather than actually adventures in themselves yeah is that what so is that what excites you now the sort of a shift into more of a creative output in general rather than doing the adventures i mean is that quite a natural progression for you that you do want to have a more sort of you know routine (laughs) (laughs) um i i love i love big adventures uh they i think are the aspect of my life that's given me the most pleasure and education and excitement and i would love to keep doing those um but i also really enjoy the other stuff um and i really like writing i really like trying to learn to make films and so um i at the moment i feel that i can there's a lot more for me to learn and a lot more for me to explore in terms of those things i've never done than, than by heading off on more adventures more adventures more adventures so uh, the creative side is i think becoming more exciting to me but i hope i'll still keep climbing mountains and riding my bike as well wonderful do you have any i mean it's the same old questions but do you have anything set up for for the future what's the if have you got a big adventure planned i don't actually i mean and a phase at the moment where I've absolutely no idea what to do next year. And these phases come around every so often when you're uh, doing it in the expedition world. If you finish one project and you look towards the next. And I used to get quite nervous when I had no idea what to do next. I'm trying to teach myself that it can be an exciting opportunity to change direction and do something different. But at the moment, I have absolutely no idea. So any ideas would be welcome. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. Well, I mean, potentially, I was thinking, obviously, you're doing a lot of the videos, but at the moment, you're, you you seem to have much more of a preference for Vimeo. Do you see maybe sort of a, a shift into more of like the YouTube vlogger kind of thing? Or does that, that kind of world not really appeal to you? Um, I use Vimeo because it, it looks pretty. Yeah. Uh, I also put my stuff on YouTube because that's where I use YouTube as an extension of Google, really, just to help your stuff get found. Yeah. whole vlogging thing, there are only so many hours in the day and there are only so many social media-y type things that you can be doing. And I think I probably, when I'm 100 years old looking back at my life, I think I'd probably, probably be proud if I'd written a couple more books than if I'd done some vlogs. Yeah. And that is not in any way to say they're not brilliant and very important things, but I, I think my glass is already quite full. Yeah, so more of the more of the writing. Do you watch any any YouTubers that just have interest? I don't actually. That, that's um, probably a sign of my vast age. Yeah. <laughs> I don't do that. Uh, I'm also, um, I I don't really like 
although I spend my life showing off about myself on the internet, how it's actually probably a more valid job description than adventurer. I don't actually like being on camera and things very much. So that puts me off doing the vlogging stuff slightly. And also I'm such a narcissist. I don't really like watching other people on video. <laughs> so I think there's lots of reasons. Who who would you recommend then in the, that I should be watching on YouTube in this in this world with uh, I mean, in terms of like the travel, just sort of general interest, interest, interesting spectrum, I think there are a few people who, in a similar way that I think you probably spend a lot of your time writing every day, these guys are filming every day. So there's a, a good guy called Casey Neistat. Oh, yes. Yeah. Who, uh, I, yeah, I do watch some of his stuff. He yeah. is very interesting. You learn a lot from him. Yeah. And, and then, uh, I mean, there's, there's sort of the sort of the daily travel vloggers like Fun for Louis and a guy called Ben Brown who are, you know, they're, they're interesting, but they're they're sort of quite, I don't know, I don't want to be too scathing of them because I still enjoy watching them, but they're sort of, you know, more go out and eat nice food and not necessarily so much interested in sort of the long, more, maybe slightly more philosophical realms of travel. Yeah. But also, you know, make excellent, really well, highly produced things that they're continuously pumping out. So, you know, great creatives. Mm. I think in the whole travel expedition world, there's, there's quite a few things to consider what, what, when people are trying to decide what to do. There's the choosing the stuff that excites you the most and feels the most worthwhile, which is clearly the, that's the key thing to, to focus on. But then it, when people start doing stuff to reach an audience, which seems to be coming more and more integral to people's expedition experiences these days, I think people, it's important to realize the size of the niche that you're appealing to. So, for, the, uh, for example, those guys you say who go do nice travel experiences, go to nice restaurants, they're going to appeal to a far wider audience than someone who's making a, a video uh, about how to climb K2 in the middle of winter. So it depends depends what sort of niche you're trying to tap into. Um, but I think that the, the key thing before that has to be choosing the stuff that excites you personally. Yes, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you're touching a bit on, on niches. Uh, are you a fan? I think you are a fan of Seth Godin. I mean, do you, is that one of the sort of the people that you, rather than maybe YouTubers, the, the bloggers that inspire you? Well, once I it was, once I decided to try and make adventure my job, so turning your hobby into a job, which is a, on the one hand a wonderful thing to do, and on the other hand quite a risky thing to do because it starts to become a job. Um, I spent a lot of time reading people like Seth Godin, trying to learn about how to, to build an audience and build what he calls a tribe. So, yeah, Seth Godin's blog is one of the few blogs that I've read most days for about 10 years without getting bored of and going off to someone else's. Yeah. Any Anyone else or any podcasts that you listen to that you, you'd recommend any sort of, you know, budding adventurers or just, you know, entrepreneurs to listen well, so for, I think from the I think budding entrepreneur, sorry, budding adventurers should turn off their computers and go climb mountains and yeah. ride bikes and not worry about anything else to do with blogging and audiences and stuff like that. Um, any budding entrepreneurs, I would copy with with flattery everything that David Hyatt does. Um, he's the, he founded Howie's and now he runs the Do Lectures and Hyatt Jeans, and I think he's got a brilliant. Uh, ethos of doing one thing really really well with integrity and I think that's the way to to approach just about any project so he he's my main recommendation okay that's interesting I've never I've, I mean I've been on the Howie site but I didn't realize he had a a more sort of you know public a public face beyond that well he's yeah he's no longer anything to do with Howie's 
Okay. Uh, but yeah, he's moved on to that. Um, and then cr- a brilliant crossover between these two worlds would be Yvon Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, who wrote a book called Let My People Go Surfing. And that is, as he calls it, the education of, of a reluctant businessman. So that's a brilliant book that crosses these two worlds. Interesting. And just pulling it back slightly to more to the, you know, the world of adventure, I think one thing that I, I gained from your, your Bothy's film was this idea of you know solitude but i i can't help but think that sometimes there's sort of a fine line between being lonely and and being you know enjoying the solitude have you always enjoyed being being alone or is it something that you've learned over time there's a very fine line between loneliness and solitude and the line shifts regularly often on a hourly if not daily basis depending on if it's raining or if you're hungry um I get very, very lonely on my trips. It was the major thing I'd underestimated on my bike trip was being lonely. Um, when I'm on my own and I'm enjoying it, I absolutely love it. When I'm on my own and not enjoying it, I hate it. So I, I think it's quite common to for people to wrestle with loneliness and solitude. Um, having said that, I think for people who spend a lot of time around a lot of people, whether at work or just busy lives I think it's really good to just escape from all that sometime and if only for one night go sleep on a hill completely by yourself if you've never done that before it's quite an interesting journey in into your own head um I didn't get bored sorry I didn't get lonely on the Bothy trip because I was just having such a wonderful time so that was the good side of solitude yeah and in terms of sort of your general reaction to places I mean that's one thing I find quite interesting. You can sort of guarantee that you're going to go to a place and you're going to see certain things, but you can't really guarantee, you know, certain other things. You know, you can't guarantee the people you're going to meet and the reaction. What, have you sort of been surprised by your own reactions to, to certain environments? Well, I think picking some place to go to really is just a, a means to get you out of the house and make the journey to that place. So a lot of the icons of the world that I've seen, Machu Picchu and the Great Wall of China, all that sort of stuff, I think are worth going towards. And the exciting, memorable things are really what happens, what Roy Stewart called the places in between, because we all know exactly what Machu Picchu looks like. And I think that's something that uh, I get less of a thrill out of. So for me, the, the best parts are the surprises and the unknown bits and the and the buses breaking down and the random people who invite you in for a cup of tea. They're, they're the lingering special memories rather than just seeing some wonderful place. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly, that's certainly how I feel. And do you think, do you think there's a way to sort of guarantee having these, these sort of, you know, magical moments? I mean, at, at points you sort of, you know, sometimes people just appear, but is there a way, do you think there's a sort of a method to having these, these sort of unplanned experiences? A method for spontaneity. Yeah, I know it's, it sounds ridiculous, but I just think you know it's that's it's one of the intangible things that it's really hard to, you know, that's that's what you want to happen, but you can't really necessarily force it. You, you certainly can't force it, um, and but I think what you can do is do sufficient planning to make you be brave enough to begin, and do sufficient planning so that the trip can keep moving onwards, and then try and make yourself be very un-British and do no more planning after that. So the very bare minimum of planning, the least, the most flexibility you can possibly have in your plans. So if you decide to cycle to 
Africa, but suddenly you meet a traveling circus who say, let's cycle to Kazakhstan, then you should definitely go with the traveling circus. So saying yes to random invitations, holding the end point very lightly and and just trying to force yourself to do unusual stuff. It's very, very easy on a big trip to get so het up with the schedule. So, oh no, we must go five more miles today, even though you found this wonderful waterfall to camp, camp next to. So minimum planning and maximum acceptance of random things, I think, is the, the recipe for spontaneity. And also going to going to unusual places where there aren't lots of tourists, that is the best way to meet really kind, random, wonderful people. So if you go to somewhere that's pretty unusual and get off the beaten track and a bicycle is perfect for this, then you will meet good and interesting people and have crazy experiences. Cool. And um, I forgot what I was going to say now, actually. <laughs> um, one thing that about meeting the people is one thing I always notice when I'm when I'm walking around London is this continuous people looking down on their phones like trying to you know following mindlessly following city mapper it, what what are your opinions on sort of technology because in some ways that you you know your career is entirely facilitated by the internet but at the same time it does sort of kill the the idea of you know people just getting lost and enjoying the journey yeah, completely. I'm I'm massively hypocritical here because I'm a total addict to my own smartphone, um, and the whole growth of micro adventures, which has been the the biggest thing I've done, um, cut, has mostly come about because I've been encouraging people to put pictures of the stuff that they do on the internet and share it with their friends. Um, so I'm very conscious of that. And the, what what I think the ideal thing to do though for to take a specific example of a microadventure is to go there, go up the hill, take photographs and things, but leave your phone on the airplane mode, or even best, go somewhere where there's no signal and you can't be tempted. And then when you get home, then upload the pictures and share them. But trying to get away from the constant connectedness is one of the driving forces of microadventures. And I think one of the most important aspects of it for, for people who think they're too busy for adventures they're the people, uh, myself included, who need to turn off their phones and go swim in a river more often. Excellent, excellent. And just to talk a bit more about our expeditions, obviously on our expeditions people have to fundraise, they have to train. What advice would you give to them maybe in their, in their fundraising journey or stuff that you wish you'd known maybe when you were 16 or 18? I think fundraising is so annoying um and time consuming and tedious and i think the best thing people can do is just the moment they have some sort of inkling that they want to do adventures is to just start saving up immediately um and to just just try and consider places within their own lives that they can start to set make some sort of savings and that can be small little things like giving up coffee if you spend three pounds a day on coffee that's 20 quid a week which is a thousand pounds in a year so these things do do add up um i think the the thing to remember for the young people doing these expeditions is what you are doing is seriously cool it's very exciting and there will be a lot of adults who are impressed and jealous and so i don't i think you if you're bold and confident um about reaching out to lots of different people i think uh 
you will be able to find people who are who are willing to help you. Um, training um, also is something that might seem some people might enjoy that, some people might hate the notion of it. But the fitter you are before you go on an expedition, the more you will get out of it. So the 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 grind of the training, the grind of the fundraising, the struggle of sorting out equipment, these things actually make the whole experience far more rewarding than in the end in the end than if you were just a millionaire who just turned up on day one and did it. So the more you struggle and the more you earn it, the more satisfying it will be in in the long run. Um, and the final thing that I'd really encourage anyone to try and do where, wherever you're going in the world is to learn as much of the language as you can before you go. That might only be 10 sentences, but those 10 sentences will just make people, their eyes light up with delight, big smiles, and you'll receive so much kindness if you just learn a little bit of the language in which, whichever country you go to. That was actually what I was going to ask before when you were talking about the strangers. Do you, can you, are you, what's your sort of, language competency so obviously fluent in, in English what's your sort of your second language if you have one <laughs> um my languages are not nearly as good as I would like I'm pretty good at Spanish I spent a year cycling through South America so my Spanish got pretty good then and that was absolutely magical to get to a point where I could just natter away to people and go to the houses and chat away in their language rather than having to just rely on English uh, that was really fantastic uh, my GCSE French and GCSE German are useful for asking for directions and buying baguettes, um, but that's that's about it. If I could have any superpower, it would be to speak every language in the world. That would be such a brilliant um, thing for anyone who's wanting to have adventures and travel. Yeah, I think that's that's so true. I mean, even because I was on expedition this year in the Amazon, and I I don't speak much Spanish. I speak a bit of Portuguese, and even just trying to fumble away in Portuguese to someone who speaks Spanish is deeply frustrating. I should have just learnt those those ten key sentences and I would think I would have had a much uh, a much easier time asking for some hot water. And mm. <laughs> but uh yeah, it's it's definitely it's definitely one of the one of the superpowers. Or it really is like a a, a real life superpower in, in some respects, isn't it? Just the ability to communicate to all. Oh yeah, it's absolutely amazing. And uh and I think it well, we've we've always been quite lazy being English speakers because so many people do speak English, and that certainly does help massively. But if you can just put in the effort to show a bit of respect to them, then it it definitely opens doors. Cool. And just going back a bit more about about food, actually, uh, food on expeditions something that you know everyone seems to crave. Obviously, you said in your diary every day it would be you know what you had for breakfast. I think um, when I was away, I was craving fish and chips. I think Ben Saunders said he was craving cheeseburgers when he was in Antarctica. What what tends to be your your go to craving? I I normally crave um, marmite on toast. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a humble man. A humble man. Yeah, very nice. Uh, yeah, simple marmite on toast and also nice breakfast cereal with nice milk because most countries have horrible cereal and horrible milk. Um, and I would recommend when you do go on a trip to take something with you. So a bottle of Tabasco sauce or something like that is just makes such a difference when you're eating expedition food. Yeah, and I think uh, spices up a wrap pack a bit better than a, an actual some actual flavouring. I've had some more yes. ones. What um I, yeah, I saw you did a really interesting project as well, doing the A to Z of food around London. What um what food surprised you the most? 
the A to Z of Food Around London has been a brilliant project. We've only got we've got to V so far. My partner yeah. Prime has emigrated. Oh no, so we've slowed down somewhat. What su- what surprised me was how incredibly disgusting the Nigerian food was. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and ones that I really loved, uh, Eritrea and yeah. Cambodia, were really fantastic. Um, and uh, but it's also been a really enjoyable experience for exploring London. So it was a, it was a it was an excuse to explore the world whilst exploring London. And I, I the Korean one we went to there's a little I forget where it is now South London. There's a tiny little community of South Koreans where there's a whole couple of streets of Korean shops and Korean restaurants and Korean people everywhere. And I'd never been to that part of London at all. So it's always good to remember that you can explore close to home. And the, actually, the Korean food was very good. Yeah, I have heard good things, actually. I worked with a Korean guy last year who kept asking me to go along for barbecue, but as a vegetarian, I didn't really see much uh, much, much on offer, unfortunately. But uh, could have had the pickled cabbage, the kimchi. Uh, oh, yeah, actually, kimchi's, uh, kimchi's huge at the moment as well. It's definitely it's on the, uh, you know, the, the fatty superfood hit list at the moment. Oh, that's disappointing. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> yeah up there with quinoa and basically any other interesting foreign foods. But... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, what um, what was Af- Af- Afghan Af- Afghanistani food like? Because I thought that was the first one, but I've absolutely no idea what it what it must entail. Afghani food, well, that whole part of the world is such a hodgepodge mixture of foods and cultures. But I I suppose in massive simplification, it was sort of pilau rice that you'd expect from Iran with the stewed stewed meats. Um, some naan breads. Um, it was nice, really. It was it was less spicy than, say, southern Indian food. Uh, but it was, a, and that was a lovely story of seven Afghan brothers who were refugees, and they managed to make it overland from uh, Afghanistan to London to start a new life, a new business, and set up a restaurant together. And they were so grateful um, to be here and to be thriving. It was it was brilliant. Nice. Where where's that restaurant? Oh gosh, that was. What was west, it called? West, I think it was called Seven. Actually, it's called out in West West London somewhere. Okay, good stuff. I'm not sure if anyone listening to this will actually go and visit it, but I certainly will probably probably try and do it. I think it's just such a it's such a cool project. I think that's it's like when you can when you can sort of turn like just a nice idea into sort of a bit of a story, like you know, exploring through A to Zs and things. It just yeah, it just makes it. It makes it engaging. I certainly think, you know, I think that's why I enjoy your blog so much, that you've got these sort of theme, thematic things that you, you go and do. Yeah, I think, I think I'm only a couple of steps away from being a train spotter, really, yeah. in terms of making lists, ticking off lists. Uh, but what, what I think trying to come up with themes really helps me do stuff. And I suppose, so for example, cycling around the world, if I just said to myself, I'm just going to ride my bike randomly for four years, and see stuff i would i would have been too lazy to bother but by saying i'm going to go from here the whole way around the planet back to the beginning that then gives me the impetus to go out and do interesting stuff so yeah i think i i a lot of what i do comes around trying to come up with themes and concepts and um and the a to z one was a way to spend time with a friend it was to teach myself filmmaking in but as a hobby, so it didn't really matter if they were rubbish. I was trying to learn new skills. Uh, it was a way to keep travelling the world, uh, but without leaving home. And it was a way to discover my own city. So I think that ticks lots of really good boxes. Oh, plus lots of good food. Yeah, I mean that's you know one of the one of the joys of life, isn't it? Good good food. So any excuse. 
And I saw you've got a new concept at the moment, this eat less, run more thing, or eat less, run more. What was the sort of the inspiration behind that? And do you see, where do you see it leading? <laughs> um, quite, so for quite a lot of years, I've had the notion of starting a website called Eat Less, Run More, which probably actually should be called Eat Better, Move More. It's probably a more accurate thing. But I've always had this notion of Eat Less, Run More. And then... A couple of weeks ago, my friend Ben Saunders uh, put up a tweet that he'd heard on the radio that a quarter of UK primary school kids were obese. And that just struck me as being utterly insane. So I thought, right, I'm gonna, I've, always, I've been talking about this website for years. I'm just going to make it. So I, spent, I went to the gym to do my normal exercise. And when I was resting, instead of just gazing around aimlessly, I had a piece of paper. And I just jotted down some text, came home, typed it up, put it online. And that was just a simple one-page website vaguely aimed to tell young people that all you need to do is eat some fruit and vegetables and not junk food and you need to run around a lot and then a lot of life's problems will go away which I know is quite simplistic but I think keeping it simplistic is part of the point because whether it's diet whether it's expeditions whatever it is people build everything up to be so big and complicated and they make so many barriers and excuses in their head that they never actually get out the front door and start. So the, the simplicity of that is actually the same as me t- telling people, go do a micro-adventure. If you want to go and climb Mount Everest but you can't be bothered to go sleep on a hill for a night, you're never going to make it to Everest. So just starting simple is is the key thing. Uh, what, what am I going to do with that? I have no idea. I just thought I would start it and see if... if the appetite comes, <laughs> so the bad choice of words, see if the <laughs> appetite comes to, to try and grow it somehow. Cool, cool. And I probably should wrap it up just about now. Obviously, I'm conscious that, you know, I'm sure you've got lots of other things to do. But what have you got coming up over the next coming weeks? Have you got any, or months, have you got any talks that people could come watch you at? Are you at any events where people can see you? Oh, gosh. Um, well, off the top of my head, I'm so disorganised in my life. I'm doing a talk in... Um, Shrewsbury at the end of um, November which is open to the public um, off the top of my head I'm, I'm doing the Buxton Adventure Film Festival in January it's in, in the Peak District um, off the top of my head I'm not sure of any others but I usually put them up on my website and Twitter and things Okay. Um, and yeah the next few weeks is just trying to f- work out what book to write next, what adventures to do next, what projects to do next year. Um, sitting in my shed, drinking tea, trying to hatch a plan for life. Yeah, nice. What, how, what's the shed, how long have you had the shed for? Was it, the, is it where you've always written or was it a, you know, an, evolve, an evolvement in the you know, nice safe space to, to work? Yeah, the shed, I've, I've, I love sheds and cabins and one of my favourite websites is Cabin Porn. <laughs> which isn't as dodgy as it sounds. It's just a load of beautiful cabins around the world. And I've often daydreamed about having a space of my own full of maps and my books and and my own music where I could just write books. And when I got a royalty, uh, not royalty, an advance for my micro-adventures book, it was my first ever book advance. I was so excited. I spent it all on a shed. (laughs) (laughs) Put maps on the walls and sit here and drink tea and uh, try and write books. Yeah. Good stuff. Do you we, do you think you're going to do an update to the Micro Adventures book, like a Micro Adventures two, or is it in its you know this is the compendium and that's that's how it will stand? 
that is the crux of my decision at the moment. I have two. There's two things I'm trying to think about. One is people really like the idea of micro adventures. There's a lot of ways that 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 could grow and go to different audiences and different parts of the world and different types of people. There's, so there's lots of things I could do on it. But uh, the other option is to say, I've told everyone to go and sleep on a hill. Now I should think of something totally different to do with my life and do that instead. And I don't know which one of those I should do. Yeah. What do you think I should do? This is turning into a counselling session. Yeah, it is a bit. But I mean, that's, that's, I mean, that's a sign of a good interview, hopefully. Um, I think, I think, well, I think what, so what Jack Thurston did like with his Lost Lanes book, he's now done like Lost Lanes Wales, which is obviously quite a quite interesting expansion rather than, you know, so that's, I guess, one way you, you could do it. Would you, could you do Micro Adventures Europe? I mean, it would be a great excuse to, to go do more, do more travel and, uh, you know, see some more places for, but. And ultimately any excuse to go do more traveling adventures sounds like a good plan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. But I think, I think that maybe there's this temptation that, people just want to keep on reading more and more rather than actually going going to do it and obviously you know that that could work out quite well for you or not but at the same time I think I know that I'd probably buy another book being like this is it it's sort of I guess it's sort of like an adventure self-help because you know people are going to continuously read them over and over again which uh maybe never actually take action but hopefully they will yeah that's the plan <laughs> yeah so that was a bit of a, a rambled answer there I've lost, <laughs> I've lost all form of counseling <laughs> Cool. Well, I think I'll probably leave it like that for now. I'll, I'll let you let you get on with your day. But it's been a, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Yeah. We, are you coming to the Explore weekend, or is it is it top secret? I'm not coming to Explore this this year, which I'm really sad about because it is one of my very favourite events of the year. And I'm continually anyone who ever emails me saying that they're planning an adventure, I always tell them the first thing they need to do is go to the Explore weekend. I think it's brilliant. But yeah, I won't be there this year. Okay, well, hopefully catch you sometime soon then. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye.